0: Uh, This is the very last message in a series called Basics. I tried to land the plane a couple of weeks ago and just couldn't do it. So what we're doing as things go awry in our country, if you're new with us, we are returning back to the fundamentals and we're exploring these three main themes that we continually gather around as a church, Jesus, community, and mission. And so this morning, what I want to lay before you is how we gather as a church. I'm just calling this message Simple Church. I want you to understand explicitly um, how we routinely gather up together as a church family. Now, consistency and routine are incredibly important uh, to your life. Routine, it represents order. Routine throughout the day. Let's not look down on routine. It represents order. But spontaneity is also beneficial to our lives, too. Spontaneity brings surprise, it brings unexpected joys to us. So we gather as a church, like we are here on Sunday or in community groups, we gather with some sense of order and some sense of predictability. But there's also spontaneity kind of embedded in how we gather as well. Last minute dinner invites, time at the beach, conversations with people that you didn't expect So our unplanned life, our spontaneous life together as a church, it happens in bursts of relational connection. It's kind of behind the scenes and and a bit under the surface as well. And I'm not down at all on spontaneity. Some of you are far more spontaneous than I am, but I enjoy it. What I want to focus on, though, this morning is... Our routine as a church, how we gather, three primary ways, and I want to try to make these three primary ways that we continue to come back to week in, week out, I want to try to make them explicit. The ways that we gather in are predictable. Let's not look at that word with a, a sense of disregard. Disregard as if it's a negative word. Predictability is not always negative. We gather on Sundays like we are this morning. We gather in community groups. And then also, something that we began with early in our days, but kind of walked away from and are returning to now, are small gender-based discipleship groups. We use an acronym called DNA for these groups, where you discover from God's word, you nurture one another's hearts, and then you act on what you learn in those groups. And I'll unpack all of this a bit, but I just want to kind of give you, um, I want to give you an idea of where we're going this morning. One of the benefits of routine is that it can be be, uh, counted on. Routine can be relied on. You can really rely on it. Like how exhausting is it when you're trying to get together with somebody and last minute you keep we like we keep going back and forth and changing times and changing dates it can be incredibly exhausting when you're just trying to get together and that shift and that shudder continues to happen so you can think of our uh, gatherings on a sunday morning you can think of them like a sure foundation that doesn't really budge a lot there are occasional times when we'll scatter as a church and won't meet on a sunday but they're pretty far and few between few and far between we would probably gather somewhere around Forty-nine to fifty times on a Sunday, together in this building every year, weekly. You could think of uh, the Sunday gathering almost like a rhythm that you can clap your hands to. When things are off, you can't clap to it. But Sundays are a regular rhythm that we return to as we worship, as we worship together. Um, you can think of a Sunday as well, kind of like a container. Uh, a container that provides safety and structure within it, where there's all kinds of room within this gathering for spontaneous activity and spontaneous relational connection. One thing that my wife Meredith and I are consistently reflecting on is how um, on a morning that we don't expect, people will walk through those double glass doors into this building. They'll walk through, we'll meet them for the very first time, total strangers, and our lives are upended by these relationships as they become our friends, and things are never the same. That is spontaneity, and it happens because of the routine of coming and of gathering together again. And that's just one benefit. We're not just here to build friendships. We're here to worship God. But in his goodness, he brings us to relational connection as well. So what the the regularity of Sunday does is it cultivates this place for spontaneous joy. Now, in a confusing season of disruption, like we're in in 2020, of disengagement, uh, there were times when this room was full in February or in May as we started to, to meet again together. There's a, a sense of kind of uh, just disruption and disorientation for many of us. We're wondering where is so-and-so or where is so-and-so or, or what, what's kind of going on here? I want to do three things this morning. I want to give you a bit of a roadmap for where we're going this morning. Number one, I want to bring God's word, his words before you out of First Peter uh, so that you understand who he says that you are so he's, uh, and, and particularly so, he under, so you understand who you are as a gathered community. That's kind of the lens that we're looking through this morning is a gathered community. Number two, I hope to bring clarity to how we routinely organize as a church family. And then number three, I want to extend a very simple invitation to you for engagement and meaningful relational connection within all of life. Now, first, we're going to get into uh, God's word this morning and let it play before us and let it really set the tone for where we're going. Um, The the Apostle Paul, to a young kind of unseasoned pastor uh, named Timothy, he commanded Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of God's word. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Is we're going to just for uh, five or six minutes, probably is about how long it will take as we read through First uh, Peter chapter one and First Peter, part of First Peter two. We're going to just let. We're going to open up space in our heads and our hearts. We're just going to let God's sacred word hang in the air. That's what's going to happen this, this morning. I'm going to home in on only a few verses. I'm going to hit 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. That's really where we're going to spend the lion's share of our time. But even more than that, it's going to be just in verse 9 of chapter 2. So that's where I'll start reading here in a moment. Now, I, I also want to bring this to your attention. What's going to happen as God's word is being read is that things are going to land on you from his word and the Holy Spirit is going to begin ministering to you and instructing you in ways that you didn't expect this, this morning and in ways that probably uh, feel disconnected from the, the message that I'm bringing to you this morning. Yes and amen. The Holy Spirit works how he wants to work, and he proves through his word faithful to his people. So he is going to minister to you and give you something this morning. He's God. He speaks. Let's open ourselves to whatever work he wants to do in us this morning. So do me a favor. Grab your Bible or one of the black Bibles around the room. We're going to be in First Peter chapter uh, 1. Uh, in the black Bibles around the room, it's on page 953 here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start in 1 Peter two 9. I'm going to read through 12. I'm going to get that swirling in your mind a bit, and then we're going to go all the way back to, to the very beginning of his letter, and we're going to read back up into that point, okay? I think that this is a good way to just orient you to where we're going to be uh, sitting and spending some time this morning. This is what Peter says. He starts this phrase in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but He's, he's challenging these exile Christians that are spread all over the known world. He's writing to a group of mostly Gentiles who are, have been persecuted and are suffering, and they're spread out all over the place, and they're questioning their place in God's historical story. He says, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." And there's purpose here that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, God, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to uh, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they call you ignorant and foolish and simple-minded, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation or the day when he presents himself to them. So that's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time. Now turn to your left, back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. This is written by Jesus' Apostle Peter. He says. He names the author here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. These people have been dispersed throughout all the known world because of persecution. They're from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, Peter writes, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This was a circular letter as well. These letters were meant to be passed through these churches, and so they would read them, and they would pass them on, and they would make copies. They would be encouraged. And then from the church in the first century on to the churches in the second, and on to the churches in the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. And here we are in 2020 reading these sacred writings, receiving encouragement from Almighty Eternal God because of Peter, because of the Holy Spirit speaking through him here. Peter writes, Blessed, in verse 3, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. The word you, every single time you see it in chapter 1 and 2 here, is plural. He's speaking to a community. So he's speaking to a gathered people. He's speaking to us as a gathered people. This inheritance, it's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you, plural, rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. You're looking forward to the obtaining of the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. They inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Jesus Christ and the subsequent glories too. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are things in which angels long to look. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for your sake, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. That's you, church, who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for he reaches back into the Old Testament, into the Hebrew Bible, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, it remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away, think about this in community, put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you, plural, you yourselves are like living stones, You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, a sort of temple to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected, it's become the cornerstone. They rejected Christ and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense Peter writes, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you church, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him, God, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. What Peter is doing here is he's, inten- he's reaching back into the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He's reaching back, and he's intentionally connecting the story of Israel. He's, he's anchoring the stories of suffering, of new covenant churches, New Testament churches to the story of God's old covenant people. He's using language that they would have been familiar with that pertained specifically to Israelites. And so each of those four phrases, but you are a royal priesthood, You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. You're a chosen race. Each of those is meant to put strength and to put a bit of steel into the spines of these churches. They're suffering. You're a chosen race. I want to unpack each of these just briefly here. You're a, a chosen race. What Peter is doing here is he's connecting Israel's history as the physical descendants of Abraham. They're the ones who came from Abraham to the new ch- to the to the church, the new community of God's people. He's connecting this reality of the Israelites being the physical descendants to the church being the spiritual descendants of Abraham. The church is a chosen and diverse group of people who are united to God and one another through faith in Christ just as Abraham had faith and trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness so to the church we have faith in Christ and it's counted to us as righteousness and so what he wants them to see is that God's work in the world it hasn't changed a bit actually what's ha- it hasn't changed course actually what's happening is his work in the world through Jesus Christ and through the birth of the church is it's intensifying in the world he says you're a chosen race there's So much more that could be said there. He also says, you're a royal priesthood. The church is not only a group of people who share this faith of Abraham, but they also, like the new Israel, like a new Israel, share the identity of a royal priesthood. There's this doctrine uh, that we believe as a church family that many Christians hold to, though not all. Um, It's the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, And it's a doctrine that expresses that believers in Christ, we share Jesus' priestly status. That is to say that there's no special class of people who mediate the knowledge and who mediate the presence and who mediate the forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers. We go straight to the Father through Christ, all Christians have the Holy Spirit, God Himself living within us. The same Spirit who empowered Jesus' life and His ministry, who makes us holy. We're made so by God's Spirit. Here, in uh, in First P- Peter two four, He mentions royal priesthood one time before He mentions it in two nine, and He says that that. Um, it's actually two five. You yourselves are like living stones; you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, and to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's saying that that Christians are a, a royal priesthood, uh, Israel. Um, In Israel, one of these 12 tribes, they were the tribe of the Levites. They came from a man named Levi, and they were called to be priests. If you were a Levite, you had some connection to the temple where God mediated his presence to the people Israel in the Old Testament. And these people were of a sort of royal blood and royal lineage. What Peter is doing is he's connecting the church and calling the church a royal priesthood is he's expressing that all believers in Christ are of a new and royal lineage, and we take after the lineage of our king. We are the people of our king, and therefore we are royal, and in some way we are priests. A priest traditionally is one who mediates the presence of God between people. They're a sort of intermediary. But as New Covenant priests, it's really, really, really clear. It, it needs to be made clear as Christians, as New Covenant priests, we're not required to offer animal sacrifices to cover, this, to cover our own sin or to cover the sin of other men and women. Jesus Christ, it's clear in our New Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice, one time for all. His life and his death covers us forever. But instead, Peter's saying you're still a sort of priest who offers sacrifices, but the kind of sacrifices that we offer are spiritual sacrifices. What spiritual sacrifices are are costly acts of devotion to God, and instead of offering the blood of bulls and goats to atone for sin, we offer the sacrifices of our daily allegiance, our daily obedience, our daily devotion to God. Our spiritual sacrifices are literal acts of devotion and gratitude to God. And they display, they sort of show God's goodness to a watching world. Uh, The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, he said, Through him, through Christ, let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And then he explains what that is. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's part of our sacrifice is to to speak of God and of what he is doing in our lives. It's to proclaim not just the gospel, yes, the gospel, but also to just continually through the fruit of our lips acknowledge his presence. And not only that, but, he's, but the writer here says, do not neglect to do good also, to do good. So that's good works, that's action, that's activity, that's through the hands. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the fruit of lips that acknowledge him and the way of a life that acknowledges him and that does good, this is a sort of spiritual sacrifice. So the Holy Spirit... He lives within us. He makes us a royal priesthood, and he moves us to serve God, to serve others through the content of our lives, through our way of life. And as a royal priesthood, as the church both gathered in local congregations, the church universal, the church scattered, wherever we find ourselves, as a royal priest, as as part of the royal priesthood of Jesus Christ, what he'll do is he draws the people in our circles to himself through our spiritual sacrifices. And these spiritual sacrifices, they function a bit like an aroma. Like think about when somebody is cooking a delicious meal. What draws draws you in? Not only your hunger draws you in, but something else when a meal is cooking draws you in. It's the aroma. But is the aroma the content? The aroma isn't the content. The aroma draws you to the content. As priests, we point people to the substance. We point people to the content. Who is Jesus Christ? So, we're a royal, we're a chosen race, a chosen people. We're a a royal priesthood. We're also a holy nation, like Israel, but even more broad, even more robust. He's reaching back into this language out of the Hebrew Bible. In Deuteronomy 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 6, the author Moses writes For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. A Holy people are those who are set apart by God. Holy, distinct. The church is the gathering of those who are being purified by the presence of the Holy Spirit who is living in us and who is remaking us. Now, Israel, in the Old Testament times, they were a small ethnic nation embedded among many other ethnic nations. They were surrounded. They were an ethnic people. But now this worldwide church is a massive nation with no borders. And it's made, the author of Revelation, the Apostle John in 7.9, he says, it's made of a great multitude of people that no one could number, From every nation, every ethnos, every ethnicity. The church is from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne of God, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. The church is a diverse, worshiping family of people, our allegiance belonging to God. And last here, Peter describes the church as a people for God's own possession. What he's doing is continuing to reach back into Israel's history, illustrating how the church is a far more robust, far broader continuation of God's redemptive work in the world. God, through the prophet Isaiah, about 700 years before Jesus, he said, my people are those whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. And then one of Peter's contemporaries, the Apostle Paul, he writes to a young pastor named Titus, and he says this. He says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, what, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Peter is reaching back. Paul is affirming that. Peter is, Peter's reaching back into the Old Testament. Paul is affirming it to Titus. And then Peter, he also says it in the final portion of our passage here. He says there's a purpose for God, for who God has called us and made us to be, that we, plural church, the people of God, the gathered people of God, might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter finishes his thoughts in 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. All of life is a war for our worship. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, they may see your way of life and glorify God on the day that he visits them. All of life is a war zone, and it's a battle zone for our worship, for our allegiances. And so there's a question for us to ask ourselves. Will those whom God has formed for his own possessions, will we live for for his purposes or for our own purposes? Will we live for his purposes or our own? It's a question I think the Spirit is presenting before you this morning. Will you live for your purposes? Your ideas, your goals, or you live for his purposes? Does he have editing capability in your life? Can he rewrite the story? Can he rewrite decisions? Does he have veto power? Abiding in a community centered and steadied on the good news of Jesus Christ, of all that Jesus has done, it's a key purpose that God has for us as a family. It's a means, actually, that he has given us to wage war on the passions of our flesh. Now, in isolation, we're picked off so readily by the enemy of our souls and the enemy of our Lord, but in Christ-centered community. When we're dwelling there. We are so much is happening as we're gathering ourselves in Christ centered community. We are reminded of the good news of Jesus. We are instructed. We are healed in many ways. We are exposed in many ways. We're warned. We're taught. We're fed what we most need. We're empowered to confess and reject our sin and the passions that wage war that literally, that's what Peter writes here, they wage war against our souls. So in these gathered communities, as we gather together in community, we're strengthened and we're equipped to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Now, how can we, as the church, be of one mind? How can we be in full accord if we're not in relational proximity to one another? How can we be in one mind, full accord, if we're not in relational proximity It's from here. It's from the place of community that God means for us to proclaim his multifaceted excellencies, to realize them as we're gathered in community and also to proclaim them. Our rescuing God, he's purifying and protecting us. He's called us away from our ignorance and he's calling us away from our ignorance, our hatred, our consuming fear into his family. And his family is this community of light, ideally, where wisdom, joy, love, mercy, faithfulness abound and are practiced in, our, in an ongoing way. Now, because of that, gathering routinely is a regular key value of ours. Gathering routinely, it's a key value of ours. It's in these gathered environments, like gathering together on a Sunday morning for Lord's Day worship. It's, for, it's gathering together in community. It's gathering together to disciple one another, that we practice the one another's as we are with each other. It's in community that we proclaim God's excellencies to one another and realize them for ourselves. It's in community that our own sin is exposed and its power progressively dismantled. It's in community that zeal for mission, to engage those who are outside of the family of God, it's it's in community that, that that zeal is fortified and amplified. It's in community that generosity is multiplied. And needs are revealed and needs are met. Now, it can be really tempting for churches to kind of over-program and so involve the the members of a a fellowship in so much church community that they have little or no margin whatsoever for family, for friends, for neighbors, for coworkers, for the people in their vicinities. Uh, When I was growing up in the church, we had Sunday morning worship. We had Sunday night worship. We had Wednesday night church. We had youth group. We had small groups. We had random various activities. We had progressive dinners. We had like all of the things. And what I found was that I had a lot of time for my Christian friends, but I had very little time for my unbelieving neighbors and friends. It was just where I found myself as a kid growing up. I didn't know uh, one way or the other. That's just my experience as I was growing up. Now, when you're embedded in a local church community, there's going to be seasons of intense learning and intense equipping and investing where you'll be crazy involved. But ideally, we don't want that to be the enduring pattern year upon year. Ideally, the idea is that we are equipped and sent, equipped and sent, equipped and sent into the margins, into the nooks and crannies, into the everyday kind of stuff of our lives. So I want to ask this question, and I have been asking this question for the last few months. What's our play when it comes to gathering and when it comes to disciple making? What's our play as a church? What's our philosophy? Our philosophy is this, simplicity and regularity. Simplicity and regularity. If you're desiring to grow as a disciple within this church community, it's probably going to happen in, uh, in various forms of each of these three environments. Each environment kind of burrowing you a little bit deeper and deeper into life with Christ. So we've, we gather on Sundays, we gather in community groups, and then also DNA groups. Each one of these, they're designed to help us remember Jesus. They're designed to help us grow in our devotion. They're designed to help us identify and walk away from our sin and our ungodly passions. Practice forgetting self and remembering Christ and remembering one another. So what these environments are meant to do is they're meant to form you as wholehearted disciples of Jesus. These environments are meant to form myself, form you and I as wholehearted disciples of Jesus. I'm convinced that community is the soil where disciples are planted and grown. We do not grow in strength as Christians in isolation. We grow best in the context of a loving, faithful, messy, dysfunctional community. As God is working His purposes out in us. It's attractive. You want to sign up for community groups? They'll be so dysfunctional. Yeah, they will be because you'll be there, and I'll be there. That's the truth. We've all got baggage. We've all got things. Now, um, these 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 primary these primary ways that we gather. I've already said it a few times, but I want it to really embed in your head and heart. Sunday community groups and DNA. Um, Think about this, if Sunday is the only regular godly community you have, that means that you gather for about an hour and a half out of 168 hours a week, less than 1% of the hours of your week, you gather on a Sunday, and you maybe knowingly or unknowingly, you kind of rely and rest on that one and a half hour period to do way more than it was designed to do. To feed you, to sustain you, to equip you, to encourage you, to correct you, and to motivate you. Like, if we're leaning on Sunday for all of that, no wonder we forget God by the time we leave the parking lot. It's not enough. But Sunday wasn't meant to be all. If we only eat one meal a week, how nourished are we? We're not uh on Friday I was um, finishing up our patio cover on the back of our house and my friend Stephen was uh, helping, to build it. And if I'm really honest, I was helping him as he built it, making the cuts and and doing all of the things. But what we were doing was we were putting some siding up on the beams and on the posts. And the place that we started was on the underside of the beam. And we had about an eight inch piece of siding that we needed to put up. So Stephen took one end of the siding up one ladder. I took a piece of the siding up another ladder and he held his end up and I held my end up and he nailed his end. Now, what if I would have just nailed my end and left it? What happens? to that siding. What does it do? It sags. It sags in the middle, right? You've got to actually, you've got to nail it all the way across the beam for it to be permanently affixed and to endure the elements and time and gravity. Our Christian lives are similar. If we expect to go from Sunday to Sunday, in some ways we're just kind of nailing it on the ends, and what happens over the course of our week? There is a ton of sag there if we're expecting Sundays to form us. Now, Lord's Day worship, I don't use that phrase a lot. It's kind of an old-fashioned phrase, Lord's Day worship. We don't think about that a lot as a a community or haven't talked about it much here, but that's what it is. We are commanded to worship on the day that Jesus rose from the dead and to come back and to remember continually. And so that's what's happening on Sundays. We gather as this large family of disciples. We look at one another. We see one another. The whole uh, church family gathers and assembles together in one place visibly unified. That's what's happening on a Sunday. With one accord this morning, we're looking to God. We're remembering Him. We're proclaiming the gospel. We're singing our praise. We're singing our prayers. We're singing our repentance. We're singing our hope. We're taking communion together. We're mingling with one another and enjoying each other's company. We find ourselves refined and refreshed. Sometimes we find ourselves wrestling and frustrated. So much tangible good and tangible challenge happens in this room or in this gathered community, but it's not all that we need. And so community groups, I think, really do fill a place for us to kind of nestle or burrow a little bit deeper into life with Christ. See, in a Sunday environment, we're partially known. In a Sunday environment, we're only partially known. How can you expect to get to know all of the people in this crew? But if I divide you up into pockets of four or five or six, then real, uh, more tangible, deeper relational connection can occur. So uh, in a handful of, uh, with a handful of households, like in a community group, we can dig deeper into this, under the surface of our actual lives and into a soil where we can know one another and be more fully known and bring the good news of Jesus Christ to bear on the issues of our real lives. So in the setting of a community group within a home, here's what happens. There's more margin to settle into conversation. There's just more margin to settle into conversation. We can ask questions. We practice asking questions of one another. We listen to one another and not just do all the talking. We rethink our lives together. For those with families and children, our kids play with one another. They grow familiar and build friendships with each other, but they also build friendships with the adults, and the adults build friendships with them. We share meals, and we come together gathered around the table, giving thanks to God for the way that he has provided for us. We feel one another's pain. We pick up on one another's anxiety. We respond to one another's heartache. We pick up on confusion. We pick up on anger. We pick up on marital tensions where they exist. And we minister to one another. We serve one another. The family of God isn't the place to hide all of those things. If the community that was formed and living under the rule of the friend of sinners... Isn't a safe place for sinners to take down their masks? What place is? We need a consistent environment where we can burrow even deeper. And so that's what DNA is meant for. I want to just read you. DNA is an acronym. It stands for Discover, Nurture, and Act. And what DNA groups are, uh, what they exist for, four is to help us shepherd one another's hearts in really acute ways, to really just continue to burrow down into the minutiae of our lives. And it takes time to build trust, and so that will occur over time, but it will occur. So Discover, it, it, it has this idea behind it. Led by the Holy Spirit, a group is uh, think about this as a gender based group. You know, ideally it's going to happen, um, it's going to kind of trickle down from Sunday into community groups, and from those community groups, members of those community groups gathering in off parts of their week when they have time to gather to really burrow down with one another. Women with women and men with men. So, led by the Holy Spirit, the goal of these groups is to teach our heads, to get our heads into the scriptures, so that each person either learns or is reminded of the truth about who God is, the truth of what he's done for us, the truth of who we are, and how we live. That's what's meant to happen, but also not just to discover from God's word, but to nurture one another's hearts. So led by the Holy Spirit, a DNA group will repent and believe in the gospel. The goal is to shepherd our hearts so that each person is brought to repentance and renewed faith every time we meet. And then not only that, but also to act. Led by the Holy Spirit Spirit, the group would listen and obey as God calls us to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. The goal is to empower our own hands so that in light of repentance, each person has a clear path forward and some accountability that honors Jesus Christ. Now, the ideal com- the, the ideal scenario is Sun from Sunday down to community groups and then from community groups to trickle into uh, DNA groups. But life doesn't unfold in neat and tidy ways, does it? So that's one way to look at it. Like we gather as the church, we gather in community groups and the members of our community groups spend some time um, practicing, discovering, nurturing one another, discovering from the word, nurturing one another's hearts and then acting on that. Yet community still remains the essential soil for disciple making. So DNA can happen in all kinds of environments. I'm going to call some of you guys out, but uh, in just a moment, like Moody students, I'm thinking about you guys. You guys have a full workload, right? You guys are going gangbusters, but you're all living in a house together right you're connected in friendship and so in many ways that kind of becomes the community group and those um, th- th- those groups of people within the home and the friendships that naturally form they become a bit of DNA for you where you can practice with intentionality the the, the idea of uh, us just coasting through life with without a plan uh, it, it I, I think it's an unwise way to live I think it's helpful for us as, a, as, a, as people as the family of God to think Think about how we need to order our lives so that we can most faithfully follow Jesus Christ in the everyday stuff of our lives. And so maybe that looks like housemates or something like that. I'm not saying this is what you have to do. I'm just presenting an option. Maybe it looks like housemates saying, hey, like, let's check in on a regular basis. Let's just do this. Let's clear our schedules here. Let's make this time a bit sacred and let's check in and get into some of the details of our lives. We need an intentional community. So within the context of all of life, it might not look like you being part of a community group officially because of schedules, because of workload, because of travel, because of whatever it might be. Whether you're um, whether you're uh, immunocompromised, and that just makes it really difficult to get together with people and for people to continually be uh, kind of bringing in the outside world into a home. That just that that's not okay for you. That is all right. What does it look like for you to have a a secure and planned community of maybe one other family or two other families where you can burrow down into life with, uh, with Christ together. Now, I realize that's probably not the most compelling pitch, but <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I don't mean for it to be, quite honestly. I want you to be persuaded by the Spirit of God and from God's Word that you need community. And I want you to respond and I want you to pursue it. I want you to go after it. I don't want you to wait for it to come to you. And I don't think that's what Christ and his spirit wants either. I think he wants us to pursue. His call was to follow him. That means we have to do something. So what does it look like for you potentially to raise your hand and just to say, not saying physically raise your hand, but to kind of opt in to signal intent and for you to say, you know what, I recognize that I need this. I don't know what it looks like. I've got some challenges in front of me, but I recognize that I need this. If that's you, and I hope that it is. if. Uh, it, it, if you want to be equipped in how to run some of these DNA groups, you've got a small circle of friends that you already trust. What does it look like for you guys to get together before school or before work or in an evening a little bit later after the kids go to bed or whatever it looks like for your season of life. What does it look like for you to raise your hand to opt in? I've got a way that you guys can do that readily. Uh, online, alloflife.church forward slash community. It's like a 10-second form. It's like a 20-second form. Name, name, email tell us a little bit about your household family kids got a home you could host in S- fill that out send it in or just grab a connect card in the seat back in front of you and just say i want to be i want to get connected to a missional community i want to get connected to a community on those cards you can drop them in the black box in the back now i thought and i considered a, a what it would look like to to do this. Trevor and I talked a little bit, and I, in a season of disruption and disorientation, I really do want to make place for the spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit. And so rather than going behind the scenes and kind of getting a bunch of leaders together and then having you guys go to sign up sheets, which we could do if nobody raises their hand, I wanted to first say, hey, like, Is this something that's kind of burning in your heart? Who are you? Let's raise some hands. Let's see who we have. Let's see how the Spirit wants to work, and then let's listen to him attentively, and let's go from there. So that's what I'm hoping uh, happens this morning. So if community is something that you desire, but you're unconnected, go to alloflife.church forward slash community or fill out one of those connect cards. What the point of all of this is, is for us to engage as growing, wholehearted disciples of Jesus who are following him in the everyday stuff of our lives. Yes? Amen. Father, make sense of your word to us makes sense of our need to us too. If we're resistant like crazy this morning to that, we don't know where to start, we're afraid, we're fearful, we've been burned, we've got hurts, whatever it might look like. Maybe we're just new and we don't know how to connect. Would you point us in a direction? Would you give us courage and conviction that would help walk us forward? And would uh, communities of light spontaneously and formally spring up within this church community so that every single person who desires connection and discipleship has the soil to find it and to be discipled and disciple others. We aim to follow you. Equip us and help us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.